Everyone, welcome. If you have your Bibles, we are continuing our study through the book of Jeremiah. We are in Jeremiah chapter 32 this evening. If you need a Bible, Richard is up and he's got a couple of Bibles in his hands. Just raise your hand and he'll bring one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. 32, 33, and 34 tonight. Yeah, because I put that in the bulletin, but after I put it in the bulletin and printed them all up, I'm thinking, we didn't get through 32, so I didn't correct the bulletin, and so it's not Billy's fault, it's my fault. We can play Jacob, you know, it's just... (laughs) He's not here. (laughs) says... It says 32. There it is. We got it right. <laughs> You're just getting old, James. That's all. <laughs> Jeremiah chapter 32 uh, this evening. Just an update for those of you that have been praying for Joey, Natalie, and Aubrey and Finley. Uh, please keep praying for them. Uh, for those that don't know, Joey's my son. Natalie's my daughter-in-law. She's pregnant with twins. She, they're at 28 weeks today. Uh, we mark 28 weeks. And so... Um, we want the babies to stay in there longer, but Natalie's been having trouble with uh, preeclampsia. Her blood pressure's been shooting up, and they think they got the blood pressure under control. And uh, last night was a good night. Yesterday, yesterday was a good day. Last night was a good night, and today was a good day. So we're hoping that everything's going to keep going. But just keep them in your prayers, and just, you know, if you would, just pray one day at a time. Lord, keep those babies in there and keep Natalie healthy and strong and and we'll see what God's going to do. He's got his hand on this, and I, I believe that it's true, and, and uh, he's going to use it to bring glory to himself. And so, uh, but thank you for their prayers, and uh, every day is a, a day, day longer, and that, that's a great thing. So, uh, Jeremiah 32, let's have a word of prayer before we begin. Father, we thank you for this night tonight, this opportunity that you've given to us uh, to be students of your word, to get into your word, to, to learn of you, Lord, to find out not only information, but also application in our own lives, Lord, that we can walk out of this place, Lord, knowing that we heard from you, Lord. You've given us direction or instruction or, or uh, encouragement, whatever it is, Lord. We, we just invite your Holy Spirit to teach us tonight. Work in our hearts, we pray. Thank you for this time together. Lord, we ask your blessing upon our children that are downstairs in the children's ministry. And, and uh, Lord, just speak through the teachers that are down there and bless them as well. And we just thank you for this opportunity together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There was an expression years ago, and I don't know if you still hear it today, but if you're about to be swindled by buying a, a worthless property, someone would say, well, if you believe that, I have some prime swampland in Florida to sell you. You know, and they'd kind of do that, but... No one's really used that expression much since the 1960s and 70s when Walt Disney did purchase worthless swampland in Florida, transformed it into Disney World. When our text this evening, Jeremiah is told by God to purchase a plot of land in his hometown of Anathoth, and it was currently worthless in that the invading armies of King Nebuchadnezzar was really already occupying it. Its value would decline even more as Babylon destroyed Jerusalem and deported the population of Judah out. And it seems by all natural indicators to be downright just a foolish move you know, to buy you know, land in Anathoth. But God has a plan and a purpose, and we will see that this evening, especially as we step out in faith. God's got a plan. He's got a purpose. Look now at verse 1 of Jeremiah chapter 32. 
The word that came to Jeremiah was from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, remember the book of Jeremiah is not in chronological order, but here in verse one we're told when this chapter takes place, the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, in the eleventh year of Zedekiah, is when Jerusalem fell. So this is right at the end. Right now the city is hunkered down behind its walls, trying to survive. Babylon is outside the walls, ready to come in. Jeremiah, he's writing really in the darkest days of the nation's history. Judgment is on the doorstep. Look at verse 2. For then the king of Babylon's army besieged Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet, he was shut up in the court of the prison, which was in the king of Judah's house. So Babylon, the, the army's uh, camped outside the walls. Jeremiah, he's under house arrest. Why is that? We'll look at verse 3. For Zedekiah, king of Judah, had shut him up, saying, Why do you prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord? Behold, I will give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall take it. And Zedekiah, king of Judah, shall not escape from the hand of the Chaldeans, but, sh- but shall surely be delivered into the hands of the king of Babylon, and shall speak with him face to face, and see him eye to eye. Then he shall lead Zedekiah to Babylon, and there he shall be until I visit him, says the Lord. Though you fight with the Chaldeans, you shall not succeed. So Zedekiah, he's pouting. Why do you keep saying that this is going to happen, that Babylon's going to come in here? Why do you keep saying that, that this is going to happen to me? You need to say something nice to me. Jeremiah goes, that's not going to happen. I'm not going to tell you what you want to hear. But you see, Zedekiah was on the wrong side of the conflict. He needed to surrender to Babylon, not to resist, but, but he wouldn't listen to Jeremiah. Instead, he tried to shut up Jeremiah by putting him into prison. Much like we see today in our culture where we say we have freedom of speech, but it's only as long as you agree with me. But if you share God's word or you share God's principles, it, it, it's hate speech. And they'll, they'll try and shut you up. Well, it didn't stop Jeremiah and it shouldn't stop us. Look at verse 6. And Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you, saying, Buy my field, which is in Anathoth, for the right of redemption is yours to buy it. Then Hanamel, my uncle's son, came to me in the court of the prison, according to the word of the Lord, and said to me, Please buy my field that is in Anathoth, which is in the country of Benjamin, for the right of inheritance is yours, and the redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. So God tells Jeremiah that his cousin Hanamel was coming with an offer to sell property in their hometown of Anathoth. Now, if Hanamel, I think, just suddenly showed up and, and said, Hey, Jeremiah, I got this land. You know, you, you want to buy it? Jeremiah probably would have said, No, I don't think so. I mean, after all, uh, again, the field was in the hands of the Babylonians. Jeremiah was in prison. The future of the nation was grim. Why even consider such an offer? Besides, what use would a field be to Jeremiah who couldn't possibly, you know, live for another 70 years? They knew they were going to be taken captive for 70 years. But see, that, however, is what faith is all about. Obeying God in spite of what we see. Obeying God in, in spite of how we feel. Obeying God uh, no matter what happens. It's been well said, faith is not believing in spite of evidence, but obeying in spite of consequences. And Jeremiah's actions illustrate just that. Listen, because we're to walk by faith and not by sight, the Lord often says, do what I tell you to do. And as you walk down that road, as time passes, as events unfold, you'll see the reason why I told you to do what I told you to do. 
Don't miss out what God wants to do in your life by just refusing to obey until you see the wreath. Well, well, I don't know if I can do that. I need to, I need to see everything before I take that step of faith. No, take that step of faith first and leave the timing and the reason up to Him. Now I wonder what's going on in Hanamel's mind. Why was he trying to sell this worthless piece of property to his cousin? Did he just want the money, you know, to use it to party because he was a party animal? I, I don't know. Uh, I had to throw that one in there. <laughs> you know, I, I thought it was funny. I'm thinking, how can I throw this one in there? But, but really, the question is, I mean, why did he do it? Did he think that Jeremiah was an easy target? Hey, I've got this land. Let's see if I can sell it to my cousin if he's dumb enough to buy it. Now listen, we've got to understand, Israel, in Israel, no one owned the land. In Leviticus 25, 23, the Lord said, The land shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine. All the land belonged to God. But God divided it among His people. Each of the twelve tribes received an allocation. And it was God's plan, God's intention for the land to remain in the possession of the family to whom it was originally given to. That's why God set out rules of redemption. If an Israeli got into a financial bind on his property, then a near relative had the right to redeem uh, or buy back the land, a kinsman redeemer. Well, here, Jeremiah's cousin is, a, is appealing to him as a near relative to do his duty and keep the land and the family. And Jeremiah forks over the cash. He does the deal. Look at verse 9. So I bought the field from Hanamel, the son of my uncle, who was in Anathoth, and weighed out to him the money. 17 shekels of silver. And I signed the deed and sealed it, took witnesses and weighed the money on the scale. So he made it legal. Verse 11. So I took the purchase deed, both that which was sealed according to the law and custom and that which was open. And I gave the purchase deed to Baruch, the son of Neriah, son of Mahasiah, in the presence of Hanamal, my uncle's son, and in the presence of the witnesses who signed the purchase deed before all the Jews who sat in the court of the prison. Then I charged Baruch before them, saying, Thus is the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, both this purchase deed, which is sealed, and this deed, which is open, and put them in an earthen vessel, that they may last many days. So the, the seal deed was an official copy. You know, this, this is it. This is the, the, the title deed. Uh, and, and while the, the, the open scroll set out the terms both parties agreed to meet, they, they archived both deeds. They put them in this, this clay jar for, for preservation. Now, the same type of clay jars that... Uh, you know, if you, if you remember the Dead Sea Scrolls were kept in similar vessels and survived for 2,000 years. But see, God here, He's making a point. Verse 15. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall be possessed again in this land. And this is the reason. He's given them hope. He said, you guys, you're gonna come back to the land. See, God had commanded Jeremiah to make such a ridiculous investment to prove to his people that Israel would return to the land, that they would be able to reclaim what was theirs. And Jeremiah kept the deed, and 70 years later, his heirs returned and took possession of the, the, this parcel in Anathoth, and, and uh, you know, it worked out just the way the Lord was leading. I think really the story provides for us a backdrop of Revelation chapter 5. There, too, is a, is a title deed of the universe. And only Jesus Christ, our kinsman redeemer, is worthy to open it and take possession. And, and, and when that happens, Revelation 5, 8 through 10 says this. Now, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls of full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. 
And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. He goes on in verse 11 and 12. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures, the elders, the number of them was ten thousands times ten thousands and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and glory and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And we see that this picture of the Lord who has redeemed us, redeemed us, and, and this really is a glorious day when the kingdoms of this world will again become the kingdoms of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the earth is restored and, and we see what God intended this earth to be like all along in the millennial reign of Christ. I can't wait. You know, even so come quickly, Lord. Now look at verse 16. Now when I had delivered the purchase deed to Baruch the son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord saying, Ah, oh, Lord God, Behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. So, you know, Jeremiah is realizing the whole reason behind why, why, why God has done this. And, and he just begins to, to, to break out in prayer. You know, and this is really a great way to begin your, 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 your prayer. You know, making sure you focus in on, 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 on the God who you're praying to. Oh, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arms. And, and he's just going on about how the Lord is and who the Lord is. C.S. Lewis once said, the prayer that should precede all other prayers is this. Lord, let it be the real me who prays and let it be the real you that I pray to. Oftentimes people are praying and, and, and you know, who are you praying to? <laughs> and you just wonder. I think even in the, in the teaching his disciples, you know, Jesus said in Matthew 6, 9, in this manner, pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. You're giving glory, God, you, you are in heaven, you're holy is your name, and you're speaking of the greatness of God. Jeremiah then continues his recognition of who God is. Look at verse 18. You show loving kindness to thousands. And repay the iniquities of the fathers into the bosom of their children after them, the great, the mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts. You are great in counsel and mighty in work, for your eyes are open to all the ways of the sons of men, to give everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. You have set signs and wonders in the land of Egypt to this day, and in Israel and among other men, and you have made yourself a name as it is this day. You have brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders, with a strong hand and an outstretched arm and with great terror. You have given them this land of which you swore to their fathers to give them, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they came in and took possession of it. But they have not obeyed your voice or walked in your law. They have done nothing of all that you have commanded them to do. Therefore, you have caused all this calamity to come upon them. I mean, what a great read that was. What an awesome God that we serve. True Prayer begins with worship and it focuses on the greatness of God. No matter what our problems are, God is greater. And, and the more we see His greatness, the less threatening our problems will become. I think true prayer really is rehearsing what God has done in the past and remembering how He kept His promises and how He, he met the needs of His people. And Jeremiah does all that in those verses. I mean, he really seems to be on the, the spiritual high until you realize that that all of this was just a preface to what he was about to say. Look at verse 24. Look, the siege mounds. They have come to the city to take it, and the city has been given into the hands of the Chaldeans who fight against it because of the sword and famine and pestilence. What you have spoken has happened. There you see it. 
And you have said to me, O Lord God, buy the field for money and take witnesses. Yet the city has been given into the hands of the Chaldeans. <laughs> Notice the difference here. You know, he's praising the Lord. He's thanking the Lord. Oh, you're so great. Then he goes, but look what's happening. You know, the siege mounds here, here when it talks about siege mounds where, where inclines built by an invading army to scale a city wall. And so Jeremiah could see that they're, they're building these mounds so they can get over the wall. They're, they're soon going to storm the city. So, so he gets a little freaked out in his prayer. He started out so good. Oh, you are so filled with loving kindness to thousands. Great is your counsel and mighty work. You, you have set signs and wonders. But God, we're surrounded. All that you said would happen is about to happen. Lord, I'm freaking out here. Lord, they're building mounds. You know I mean, they're going to get in. Has that ever happened to you? I know, God, you are great. You are powerful. You can do all things. But God, do you see that I can't afford to pay this utility bill this week? My kids are all sick. I'm not feeling well. My husband is laid off. And on top of that, Lord, look, the siege mounds. I have a laundry piled three feet high on my, my bed. Listen, that's okay. It's okay to cry out to the Lord. There's nothing wrong with that. Yes, he knows already, and yes, he's aware of the things, and you can rest assured that as you get into God's word, he will give you assurance of just that. In fact, look at how, just how the Lord responds to Jeremiah and ministers to him in the next verse, verse 26. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? Don't you love that verse? I'm the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? Nothing is too hard for God. We need to remind ourselves of this. I need to remind myself of this from time to time. God can keep two twin girls in a mother's womb until the time they're due. No problem. No problem at all. God can heal someone of cancer just as easily as he could heal someone of the common cold. Nothing's too hard for God. God can heal my marriage. Yes, he, he, just as easily as he brought the two of you together in the first place. God can, you fill in the blank. Absolutely, the Lord says, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? I think of, of what the angel said to Mary after announcing she would give birth to the Messiah. And she says, how is this possible? And, and, and it says there in Luke one thirty seven, for with God nothing will be impossible. Do you have things that, that seem impossible right now? The issue isn't whether or not the thing is possible to you, but whether or not you believe that it's possible to God. That you believe that nothing is too hard for God. So God ministers to Jeremiah, tells him, relax, got things under control. Look at verse 28. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will give this city into the hands of the Chaldeans, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall take it. And the Chaldeans who fight against the city shall come and set fire to the city and burn it with the houses of whose roofs they have offered incense to Baal and poured out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. Because the children of Israel and the children of Judah have done only evil before me from their youth. For the children of Israel have provoked me only to anger with the work of their hands, says the Lord. For this city has been to me a provocation of my anger and my fury from the day that they built it even to this day, so I will remove it from before my face because of all the evil of the children of Israel and the children of Judah, which they have done to provoke me to anger. They, their kings, their princes, their priests, their prophets, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And they have turned to me the back and not the face. Though I taught them 
rising up early and teaching them, yet they have not listened to receive instruction. But they set their abominations in the house, which is called by my name, to defile it. And they built the high places of Baal, which are in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to cause their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire of Moloch, which I did not command them, nor did it come into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. Here, the Lord is just going over and over again why judgment is coming. This sin over and over again. To pass through the fires of Moloch. We talked about this before. Moloch was a god that they would worship. And it was a god that they would heat up the arms of this god and put babies, live babies on them to, 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 to worship this god. God's going, how do you even come up with this stuff? You know, I, I mean, nor did it come into my mind that they should do this abomination. They just sin over and over again and, and they have no signs of repentance. It's got to stop. And that's what the Lord says. But, got some good news. He says, restoration is coming. Look at verse 36. Now, but therefore, thus is the Lord and the God of Israel concerning this city of which you say, it shall be delivered into the hands of the king of Babylon by the sword, by the famine, and by the pestilence. Behold, I will gather them out of all the countries where I have driven them in my anger, in my fury, in great wrath, and I will bring them back to this place, and I will cause them to dwell safely. They shall be my people, and I'll be their God. Then I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for the good of them and their children after them. And I'll make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from doing them good, but I will, will put my fear in their hearts so that they will not depart from me. Now again, he's speaking here of the everlasting covenant. It speaks of the new covenant that we have because of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us and how the Jews will, will, will know that Jesus is their Lord, is, is their Messiah. And as a result, they'll have one heart and one way and they'll fear the Lord. Verse 41. Yes, I will rejoice over them to, to do them good and I will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. For thus is the Lord, just as I have brought all this great calamity on this people... So I will bring on them all the good that I have promised them. And fields will be bought in this land of which you say is, it is desolate without man or beast. It has been given into the land of the Chaldeans. Men will buy fields for money, sign deeds and sell them, and take witnesses in the land of Benjamin and the places around Jerusalem, and the cities of Judah, and the cities of, of the mountains, and the cities of the lowlands, and the cities of the south, where I will cause their captives to return, says the Lord. Yes, Jeremiah, you look foolish now buying up that land, but there's going to come a time when the investment that you made, it's going to pay off. And it's going to be beachfront, beachfront property of its day when Jesus returns in the second coming to establish God's kingdom on the earth. You know that, that Walt Disney, when he started buying the swamp land in Florida, he did so under different names so no one realized what he was doing. He knew that the value would skyrocket once folks understand that, that uh, he wanted the land. I mean, don't you wish you'd bought a few acres back then and had to resell to Disney? Well, well, here the Lord is telling Jeremiah, no, listen, I'm not done with my people. I'm not done with my people. You know, the same thing is true for us. God is not finished with you or me. Things may look bleak from time to time. But know this, there's going to come a time when all is made right. We're told in Philippians 1, 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work and you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Once someone came on, uh, someone came on Michelangelo, came up to Michelangelo who was chipping away at this, uh, with his chisel at this huge, shapeless piece of rock. And he asked the sculptor what he was doing. He says, I am releasing the angel in prison in this marble, he answered. 
And I think sometimes God allows hardships in our lives, but it's because He sees what the finished product is going to look like. For Judah, they went into the, into the Babylonian captivity as a people who worship idols, who, who strayed away from God. When they came out of the captivity, they would be a people who had learned to walk with their God, who would never worship idols again. Okay, chapter 33, look at verse 1. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah a second time, while he was still shut up in the court of the prison, saying, Thus is the Lord who made it, the Lord who formed it, to establish it. The Lord is his name. Call to me, and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. Years ago, my wife and I, we were dealing with all sorts of family issues. My mom's health was failing. Um, we were taking care of my grandmother. My sister had just passed away, and, and Lisa had gone to bed, and I'd stayed up, and I was uh, reading my Bible, and I came across Jeremiah 33, 3. Call unto me, and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. And I loved it, and I wrote it down on a piece of paper because the Lord really spoke to my heart, and, and we're going through a tough time. I said, Lord, I just, man, I don't know. I know you, you know what's going on. And, and, I, and I put it on the refrigerator with a little magnet. Well, the following morning, I got up, and Lisa's at the table, and she's reading her Bible, and she, she uh, came across that same verse, and she wrote it down. And, and, and I got up, and she showed me the verse. She says, Tom, I just want you to see this verse. The Lord gave me this verse. She shows it to me and said, look at the refrigerator. <laughs> it's the same exact verse, you know. And I love the Lord when he gives the same verses and, and he speaks to our hearts as, as, a, as a married couple. He says, Lord, I, I'm speaking to you guys. Listen, the next time you open your Bible, expect God to show you great and mighty things. He's a God who loves to reveal. God is a teacher, uh, a teacher at heart. We're his, his students. Call on me, I will answer you, I will show you great and mighty things which you do not know. Verse 4, For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the houses of the city and the houses of the kings of Judah, which have been pulled down to fortify against the siege mounds and the sword. They come to fight with the Chaldeans, but only to fill their places with the dead bodies of men whom I will slay in my anger and my fury, all for whose wickedness I have hidden my face from this city. So, you know, the people that they were huddled inside the walls of Jerusalem as the Chaldeans laid siege. So, so to reinforce the walls, the Jews tore down the, the palace, their houses, and as they're trying to reinforce the walls, trying to, to you know, no, you know, we're, we're going to stop you. But, but really, what a powerful dramatization this is of what sin does to you. It causes you to pull down your own house with your own hands, and, and God wants to build it. The devil always wants to destroy. And what an awful scene this is, you know, uh, what's going on. Now look at verse 6. Now, it's not going to last forever um, uh, because God, again, has a wonderful future. Look at, look at verse 6. Behold, I will bring it health and healing. I will heal them and reveal to them the abundance of peace and truth. And I will cause the captives of Judah and the captives of Israel to return and we will rebuild those places as at the first. I will cleanse them from all their iniquity by which they have sinned against me and I will pardon all their iniquities by which they have sinned and by which they have transgressed against me. Then it shall be to me a name of joy, of praise, and an honor before all nations of the earth who shall hear all the good that I do to them. They shall fear and tremble for all the goodness and all the prosperity that I provide for it. Thus is the Lord. Again, there shall be heard in this place of which you say is, it is desolate without man or without beast in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate without man and without inhabitant and without beast. 
the voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voice of those who will say, Praise the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for His mercy endures forever. And of those who will bring the sacrifice of praise into the house of the Lord, for I will cause the captives of the land to return as at the first, says the Lord. Now this happens when Jesus is going to return to rule over Jerusalem. A city that was desolate and, and abandoned will come to life. You know, the world trembled at God's judgment on Jerusalem. Now they'll tremble again in verse 9 at His blessings on the same city. It says there, the nations will tremble for all God's goodness. And notice verse 11, sacrifices will return to Jerusalem, but, but the emphasis is not on blood sacrifices. When Jesus returns, Ezekiel 40 indicates that there will be some symbolic animal sacrifices, but, but sacrifice for the atonement of our sins ended 2,000 years ago at the cross. When Jesus returns in this rebuilt temple, will be filled with sacrifices of praise. God will pardon Israel and they'll be thankful. And we're seeing the millennial kingdom here in a picture of that. Verse 12. Thus is the Lord of hosts in this place which is desolate without man and without beast and, all in, and in all its cities there shall again be a dwelling place of shepherds causing their flocks to lie down. In the cities of the mountains, in the cities of the lowland, in the cities of the south, in the land of Benjamin, in the places around Jerusalem and in the cities of Judah, the flocks shall again pass under the hands of him who counts them, says the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will perform that good thing which I have promised to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. And those days... And at that time I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness. He shall execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. So who is this branch of righteousness growing up out of David? Of course, it's Jesus Christ. He's talking about when Christ comes again and establishes the kingdom that God is going to cause the nation of Israel to be again in the land and be nurtured by the Lord. Verse 16, In those days Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell safely and this is the name by which uh, she will be called the Lord, our righteousness. Lord, our righteousness. In the Hebrew, it's Jehovah Sitkenu. I mean, if you, uh, you know, have, if you and I have any righteousness, it's Jesus Christ. He is our righteousness. Verse 17, For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. Well, if that's true, where is he? Where is the man sitting on David's throne? Well, that's the mystery of God's kingdom. Right now, the Messiah is sitting on a throne, but it's a throne in heaven. Jesus is at God's right hand preparing to return and rule over planet earth. So David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. Verse 18. Nor shall the priests, the Levites, lack a man to offer burnt offerings before me to kindle grain offerings and to sacrifice continually. Now again, we know from Scripture that there will be a temple in the kingdom age and that sacrifices will be offered. I believe that the sacrifices that will be offered during the kingdom age will be a, a memorial to show the people born during the thousand years of the kingdom of what it costs for Jesus to save them. You know, kind of like what we do when it, when it comes to communion. We look back at what Jesus just did on the cross. But again, uh, there will all be the sacrifice of praise, as we read in verse 11. Praise the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for His mercy endures forever. And of all those who will bring the sacrifice of praise into the house of the Lord. Now verse 19. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Thus is the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so there will be not, not be day and night in their season, then my covenant may also be broken with David my servant, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne and with the Levites of priests of my ministers. In other words, there is no way that Jesus is not going to reign on the throne. Verse 22. 
As the host of heavens cannot be numbered, nor the sand of the sea measured, so will I multiply the descendants of David my servant and the Levites who minister to me. So again, the promise was as certain as the sure appearance of night and day and this incalculable number of stars of sands, grain. God, you know, this is again showing God, God was and it is and is not done with the Jewish people. Verse 23 to the end verifies this even further. Verse 23. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, Have you not considered what these people have spoken, saying, The two families which the Lord has chosen, he has also cast them off. Thus they have despised my people as if they should no more be a nation before them. Thus is the Lord. If my covenant is not with day and night, and if I have not appointed the ordinances of heaven and earth, then I will cast away the descendants of Jacob and David my servant, so that I will not take any of the descendants to be rulers over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For I will then cause their captives to return and will have mercy on them. Again, God is not done with the nation of Israel. You, you, can, you can count on His promises. And what's true of God's promises to Israel is also true to God's promises to us. I mean, the, the, the sun won't rise before God fails to deliver on, on a single promise to His people. There's one a little girl told her friend that she had 12 pennies, but when her friend looked into her hand, she noticed she only had six. I thought you said you had 12 pennies. The girl responded, I do, I have six, and my father told me he would give me six more, so I have 12. Obviously, she believed her father's word was as good as done. Our father, God, deserves the same confidence from us. His promises never fail. Now, as we come to chapter 34, understand again, these are not in chronological order. We get to chapter 34, we're back again when Zedekiah threw Jeremiah into prison. We're not telling him what he wanted to hear. Look at verse 1. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army, all the kingdoms of the earth under his dominion, and all the people fought against Jerusalem and all its cities, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Go and speak to Zedekiah, king of Judah, and tell him, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall burn it with fire. And you shall not escape from his hand, but shall surely be taken and delivered into his hand. Your eyes shall see the eyes of the king of Babylon. He shall speak with you face to face. And you shall go to Babylon. So there had been a time when the nation could have repented, could have been saved. But they've long passed that time. And Zedekiah, he needs to cut his losses, needs to minimize that loss of life. It's time to surrender. Now, if you're going 80, 90 miles per hour and a policeman pulls in behind you and the lights are, are, are you know, going off and the sirens going, you have a choice. You can step on it. You can try and outrun them, or you can stop and accept the citation. Obviously, you're better off stopping, running, and, and, and you're just creating worse consequences. And this is what Zedekiah was doing by resisting the Babylonians. God said, you know, you need to surrender. You need to go with them. And, 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 and no, I'm not going to do it. And Jeremiah says, enough is enough. Notice, too, a big deal is made of Zedekiah having to meet Nebuchadnezzar face to face and eye to eye, verse 3 says. In fact, in 597 B.C., the Babylonians took Zedekiah at the time, Jeconiah, uh, uh, to Babylon, and Nebuchadnezzar installed Zedekiah in his place. His appointment was a personal favor from Nebuchadnezzar, yet now that, that he rebels, now that Zedekiah is rebelling, I mean, he shouldn't expect Nebuchadnezzar to take it so kindly. And so they're going to see each other face to face. And this was the tyrant who, who stoked the fiery furnace for anyone who refused to bow down and worship his image. So they're going to see each other. There's a confrontation that's going to take place. Imagine what he's going to do with this traitor like Zedekiah. Look at verse 4. Yet hear the word of the Lord, O Zedekiah, king of Judah. 
Thus says the Lord concerning you. You shall not die by the sword. You shall die in peace, as in the ceremonies of your fathers, the former kings who were before you. So they shall all burn incense for you and lament for you, saying, Alas, Lord, for I pronounce the word, says the Lord. In other words, it's saying, Zedekiah, you're not going to die in battle. You're going to die of old age, and they're even going to have a funeral for you. What Jeremiah doesn't know, uh, or rather what, what Zedekiah doesn't know, and what Jeremiah doesn't tell him is that he's going to die blind. Second Kings 25 tells us Nebuchadnezzar murders Zedekiah's sons, then pokes out Zedekiah's eyes, and the last sight the man sees is the slaughter of his sons. See, judgment came to Zedekiah for not listening to Jeremiah, not listening to the word of the Lord. Verse 6. Then Jeremiah the prophet spoke all these words to Zedekiah, king of Judah in Jerusalem, when the king of Babylon's army fought against Jerusalem and all the cities of Judah that were left against Lachish and Azekah, for only these fortified cities remained of the cities of Judah. So Nebuchadnezzar's army just, just swept through Judah. Only two outposts remained outside the city walls. Uh, Lachish was about 35 miles southwest of Jerusalem. Uh, Azekah was 15 miles I read an interesting fact that in 1935, several dozen letters written on clay tablets were discovered in the excavations of ancient, ancient uh, Lachish. They were written by Hebrews at the time, and they were all about the Babylonian invasion of Judah, what was going on. They're, they're called the Lachish letters, and they're uh, on exhibit in the London Museum in Jerusalem. Just one of the many confirmations, you know, of the Bible's historical reliability. Hey, this happened, hey, we found proof of it here. Verse 8, this is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after King Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people who were at Jerusalem to proclaim liberty to them, that every man should set free his male and female slave, a Hebrew man or woman, that no one should keep a Jewish brother in bondage. Now when all the princes and all the people who had entered into the covenant heard that everyone should be set free, his male and female slaves, that no one should keep them in bondage anymore, they obeyed and let them go. So Zedekiah says, you know what, we're going to proclaim liberty. Those of you that have slaves, you know, you can set them free. Now, the Bible is criticized for its tolerance of slavery, but in the Old Testament times, it was more benevolence. See, under the law of Moses, if you got into debt and, could, debt and you couldn't satisfy your creditors, you could sell your freedom to pay off your debts. But there were stipulations. It only lasted for six years. On the seventh year, all slaves would be set free with a liberal compensation. Listen to Deuteronomy 15, verse 13 to 14. And when you send him away free from you, you shall not let him go away empty-handed. You shall supply him liberally from your flock, from your threshing floor, and from your wine press. From what the Lord has blessed you with, you shall give him. Now that doesn't sound too bad. See, I worked for you for six years. I pay off all my debt. And then when I leave, you can give me all this stuff. I mean, it sounds actually pretty good. Today, though, slavery, you know, it, it's associated with hatred and racism and, and, and abuse, and rightly so, but, but not in ancient Israel. The system was, was governed by, by mercy, not by meanness. So here, Zedekiah orders the release of the slaves, and, and everyone complies, you know. I think it's really an example of, of panic piety. Now, people, they live as, as they, they please until they get in trouble. But suddenly, you know, they obey God. Suddenly, they want to do what is right. Oh, you know, oh, no, oh, things are going bad. I need to do what's right. You know, you hear of it, you know, maybe they call it jailhouse conversion. The guy lives his own way until he gets locked up, and now he turns to God. 
course, the question is, is it sincere or just, just trying to get out of jail? There's nothing wrong with jailhouse conversions if it's truly genuine, if it's a true conversion. I've seen God work in mighty ways of a man in prison. But if all you're doing it is just an effort to manipulate circumstances for your own sake, God sees right through it. So Zedekiah, he releases all the slaves, but then suddenly in verse 11, he has second thoughts. Look at verse 11. But afterwards, they changed their minds and made the male and female slaves return whom they'd set free and brought them into subjection as male and female slaves. And there you have it. How sincere really were they? On second thought, I think we're going to disobey. Let's get the slaves back here. Now, what we're not told here is what we'll discover in chapter 37 is that the Babylonians packed up and briefly aborted the siege of the city. The Egyptian pharaoh had moved his army nearby and the Babylonians left Jerusalem to confront the Egyptians. And, and when that happened, suddenly, hey, Zedekiah thought, hey, we're not going to be overtaken. We're not going to be destroyed. And, and, uh, or they thought before that happened, they thought, we're going to be destroyed. Okay, all the slaves, you can go free. Everybody can go free. And then Babylon leaves and he goes, okay, we're not going to be destroyed. Okay, you guys come all come back here. Now come back. We want you to be slaves. And just shows you how insincere they, they truly were in letting the slaves go in the first place. Now it reminds me of people who claim Christ just to get a girl, get a guy. Oh yeah, I'm a Christian. We, we can go out. Sooner or later, if there wasn't a true conversion, the true colors will come out. Now because of this, we read now in verse 12, Therefore, the word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus is the Lord, the God of Israel, I made a covenant with your fathers in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, saying, At the end of seven years, let every man set free his Hebrew brother, who has been sold to him, and when he has served you six years, you shall let him go free from you. But your fathers did not obey me, nor incline their ear. Then you recently turned and did what was right in my sight, every man proclaiming liberty to his neighbor, and you made a covenant before me in the house which is called by my name. Then you turned around and profaned my name, and every one of you brought back his male and female slaves whom he had set at liberty, at their pleasure, and brought them back into the subjection to be your male and female slaves. Therefore, thus says the Lord, You've not obeyed me in proclaiming liberty, everyone to his brother and everyone to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim liberty to you, says the Lord, to the sword, to pestilence, and to famine. And I will deliver you to trouble among all the kingdoms of the earth. And I will give the men who have transgressed my covenant, who have not performed the words of the covenant which they have made before me, when they cut the calf in two and passed between the parts of it, the princes of Judah, the princes of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf, I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek to save their life, who seek their life. Their dead bodies shall be for meat for the birds of the heaven and the beasts of the earth. <laughs> okay, for one split second, you were thinking you were doing something right, but you couldn't even last a split second. And you just turned around. And, and, and uh, you know, apparently in the midst of all this, Christ is the people, of, they cut a deal with God. You know, they, they did a covenant. We're, we're going to free the slaves, and, and this must have been one aspect of the covenant. Now, here we learn a little bit of where we get the practice of making a covenant, or, or we, we you know, learn, the, you know, to borrow a book, the art of the deal, the contract. I mean, if you think signing a house contract is an ordeal, it's nothing compared to how ancient Israelis entered into agreements. I mean, they would cut a calf crossways from head to tail, lay, lay the pieces side by side, just a few feet apart, 
Two parties entering this agreement locked arms and walked between the animal pieces as a symbol of their unity and their commitment to the covenant. How would you like to do that when you're buying a house or a car? <laughs> okay, someone's got a car, a cow, you know, here, sign here, I don't know. But here the Lord is reminding them of the covenant He made with them. And how they broke the covenant. And that's why judgment is coming. They, they broke the covenant. We've looked at this before. Finally, verses 21 and 22. And I will give Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his princes into the hand of their enemies, into the hand of those who seek their life, and into the hand of the king of Babylon's army, which has gone back from you. Behold, I will command to the Lord and cause them to return to the city. They will fight against it and take it and burn it with fire. And I'll make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitant. So the army's retreat, Babylon's army retreat, was not deliverance. It was just a reprieve. Babylon would come back. God's judgment was still coming. He keeps his word, and he keeps those who keeps his word. May we, in the days that we live in, realize that Jesus' return is near. Judgment is at the door. And if it looks like there's a reprieve for a minute, it just, it's just by the grace of God, he's given us more time to share with people the love of Christ. Because the wrath is coming. Therefore, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, let's be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time tonight. And Lord, we see, uh, Lord, the result of sin, the result of, of your people turning their back on you, Lord. And even after warning after warning, Lord, they continue to, to, to do that which was evil in your sight. And Lord, we recognize that the only thing left to do from a merciful God is, is to judge them and to get them to stop. Lord, and you did. And Lord, we recognize that the earth that we live in, Lord, and the times that we live, things are getting worse, Lord. But you've given us a hope. It's the hope of heaven, the hope of eternity with you, Lord God. Lord, that you are going to save us as believers from the wrath to come. So Lord, as we spend this time, Lord, waiting for your return. Help us to be good stewards over our time that we might be able to reach those that don't know you, Lord, with the hope of the gospel, that we might be able to live lives that are pleasing to you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for our relationship with you, the love you've given to us, that, Lord, you've opened up our eyes and, and helped us to see, Lord, that we needed the forgiveness of our sin. We needed to come to you, Lord. Jesus, thank you for the cross. And going to the cross and, and dying for our sins and rising again from the dead. Praise you for this night tonight, Lord. We praise you for your goodness, your loving kindness. We give you all the glory, honor, and praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So stand